We've all heard the phrase, history repeats itself. Well, this week, as Myron takes us through Genesis 29, we see that ring true when Jacob goes from the one deceiving to the one being deceived as he seeks a wife. Here's Myron. Well, hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you're tuning in. We are in week 27 uh, through our journey through the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 29. We're going to cover pretty much the whole chapter. We're going to read as pretty much all those verses, and we're going to unpack this thing. But if you've been tracking with us for all 27 weeks, the faithful, you're like, yes, go. I'm ready to hear the next adventure in the story of this chaos and this crazy family. And then if you're just tuning us, tuning into us for the first time, or you're just hanging out, I want to give you a, a super quick recap of where we are and how we got here. But Genesis is, is a book of beginnings. And in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God spoke at the Big Bang creation. He made everything. And that includes you and I and everything that exists on this earth. And, and then he had, a, he, had a, he had a plan of perfect relationships relationship with humanity and he made the first humans and it was supposed to be beautiful and paradise here on earth but then sin because if God 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 gave us the free will to choose real love and if we can choose real love then we have to be able to choose to not love and then we have to be able to choose between right and wrong so we can actually experience real love with God and with one another and so we see the fall of man and all kinds of sin and brokenness plagues humanity and then for the next like 12 chapters or 12 pages of the Bible it's man's attempt through marriage and success and identity crisis and the flesh and the battle and all kinds of chaos happen and and those. And then finally God says, or it's time now for God to say, okay, I'm ready to bring about redemption for all of humanity, for all time through a people group. And he picks this guy, this nobody called Abram. He's a Babylonian, pagan, worshiping nobody. And God knows, I think, in his humor, in his sovereignty, he's like, you know what? If I choose a group of people, they're going to be filled with pride of thinking they're like the elite people. He's like, so I got to choose some lowly outcast dude. That way, when I make him great, they will know it's because of God that made him great and not because he was great in and of himself. So he chooses Abram, changes his name, Abraham. He's the father of faith. He's got some kids. There's a bunch of, there's chaos and dysfunction in this family. We've been tracking with this family and we were two generations down from Abraham. And my goodness, like you want to talk about a people that God chose and we would go, why would God choose these people? They're broken. They're full of sin. They, they fail. They suck. They screw up. There's dysfunction. But it brings me a lot of comfort to know that if he can bring the Messiah to earth through these people, they are his chosen people, how much more does that give us validation that he chose us? that we can be in relationship with him in spite of our failures and shortcomings and insufficiencies and our battle with sin and temptation in this life. He still chose us and calls us and loves us and has a relationship with us. And so where we really are, is um, there was these two brothers. So there was Isaac was born from Abraham and Isaac had two kids, Esau and Jacob. And then Esau and Jacob hate each other. Well, Esau hates Jacob because Jacob stole his birthright and his double portion of the inheritance. And so now we see Esau is enraged, Chewbacca boy, hairy, fighter, rugged dude. Is like he, And Jacob full well knows that Esau could kill him. Like I've seen him hunt. He knows how to use weapons. He's going to kill me. And so Rebecca, Jacob's mom, doesn't want that to happen. It's like, hey, 
get out of town. You got to go. And comes up with this plan of, you know, go marry a woman from my brother's house, my brother Laban, which would be your uncle Jacob, go to his land, Haran, and marry somebody there. And this was a plan to get him out of Dodge so he didn't get killed by Esau. And Jacob's like, okay, good. I don't want to die. So he, he agrees and he sets out on this journey. He has this one dream. And we talked about that last week, this dream of where God's going to fulfill his promise that he gave to Abraham through Jacob make him a great nation and descendants among or descendants that number the stars and the dust of the earth. And so now he's on his journey to Haran and we're going to find in this chapter, he gets there. But I want us to understand that he traveled about 500 miles to get to Haran. Like that would be a 40 to 50 day journey at, a, at an average pace of, you know, one to two mile an hour a day for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day with sunlight. It's a long haul. It's a long journey. It's like the amazing race. He probably was just journeying through the desert and through the rocky terrain in the heat. Um, and he's coming up to people groups or villages and saying, hey, where's Haran? Which direction's Haran? And he just keeps bouncing and going. He's on this journey to Haran to go to his uncle Laban's house that his mother instructed him. And this was the plan to save him from not being murdered from Esau. And so here we go. It says this in, in Genesis chapter 29. We pick it up. Then Jacob continued on his journey and he came to the land of the Eastern peoples and he saw a well in the open country and three flocks of sheep lying nearby it. And the flocks were watered from this well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When the flocks were gathered there, shepherds would remove the stone away from the well's mouth to water the sheep. Then they would turn to the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. He sees some shepherds. He sees some sheep. He sees a well. He's coming a little bit of a civilization. And he asks these shepherds, he says, Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we're from Haran. They replied, he made it. He finally made it. I mean, talk about a trek of a journey, 500 miles. And he probably asked the same question, every civilization. Hey, where are you from? This is the right place? Okay, where do I go? Put me there. There was no GPS. There was no topography. There was no maps. Heck, there wasn't even road signs. There probably wasn't anything to direct his path per se. He knew in the general direction and he set off and he had to rely on people probably to give him more instruction. And finally, he asked the question, is this it? Is this where I'm supposed to be? And they say, yeah, it's Haran. You've made it. And here's the thing about Haran. What's he supposed to get in Haran? He's supposed to get a wife. That was the, that was the plan. Like go marry a wife. So he's been traveling. He's probably stinky, dirty, smelly, tired. He probably craves a family. He's like, yeah, in anticipation of a wife. And I'm here. I get a wife now. I get a family. And it's ironic that he didn't have a wife yet, but Esau had three. And the third one was out of spite because he married two Canaanite women he shouldn't have. And then he married a third one out of spite. And he probably looks at his brother and he doesn't want to trade places with his brother. But here's what I know about siblings. I had five of them. We're competitive in everything. Even when it comes to like women or wives, like we can find anything to be competitive about. And so he's probably desiring and wanting to have a family. He has the promise that, that he's going to continue the line of, of this promise. He's going to have children and populate the earth and his descendants will populate the earth. And so he's probably excited to have a wife. He's here. He's in Haran. He gets his wife. He gets his family. And then he says to them, okay, good. I'm here. He's like, hey, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him. They answered. Then Jacob answered, or then Jacob asked them, is he well? I love this. Catch it. He's in Haran. He's supposed to look up Uncle Laban. And he's asking, do you know him? Yeah, they know him. But is he, is he alive? Basically, is, is he alive? Is he well? Is he not dead? Because they didn't have Facebook. 
I don't know, it was like a few years before Facebook. He couldn't just look him up and like see postings of his daughters and his kids and know like he's okay and he's fine. You know, they weren't sharing Pinterest recipes about their lamb stews that they were making or, you know, they weren't catching up in that way. They had no idea. He had no idea 500 miles away. They didn't have the U.S. Postal Service to write letters. They had no idea. He had no idea if he was even alive. And so he's a rich kid, kicked out of his house, for betraying his dad and his brother. His brother wants to kill him. He's on this journey. He's got an inheritance. Daddy's got a big trust fund for him, a double portion, but he won't get it until dad dies. And that's going to be about 40 more years. He's got to find Uncle Laban. He's got to find Uncle Laban. Because if he doesn't, he realizes he has no place to stay. And he's probably going to have to trek 500 miles back to Chewbacca, who wants to kill him. Like the furry man that got the ability to kill him with his bare hands is going to kill him. He's got to find him. He has to hope that he is alive. He asks, is he well? Yes, he is well. And yes, he is. They, they said, they replied, yes, he is well. He is alive. And guess what? Here comes his daughter, Rachel, with some sheep. Here comes a woman. What, what is he in Haran for? A wife. And not just any woman, but a woman in the family of Laban. And they're like, yeah, 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 by the way. Here comes the most eligible bachelorette for you right now on your first day in town. And she has sheep, bonus. She's got sheep, bonus. She's got, she's Laban's daughter. And now I know for a lot of us guys today, sheep doesn't really turn us on. It's not like a desirable thing. Yet you got some sheep, man. That's the kind of gal I want. Let me give you some modern day translation of sheep. He shows up, there's some shepherd boys, some guys hanging out at the office you know, and then all of a sudden there comes this woman rolling up in the parking lot in a Ferrari. She's got money. Now you understand sheep in that culture. She's got wealth. She's got security. She's got that, that look about her. She's got things going for her and she rolls up. She's got wealth. Yeah, it's a woman. I'm here to seek out a woman as a wife. Bonus, got to be in Laban's house. Check, she's got a yacht. What more could I ask for? And then you got to put on your guy goggles, which I have, and I want you to put on your guy goggles to understand these next few verses. And he, after he sees Rachel and the sheep, he comes back to the shepherds, kind of hanging out in this area by the well. And he says, hey, look, he said, sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep, take them back to pasture. And the shepherds say, we can't, they replied, until all the flocks have come together and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep. Like, what's the point of this? And I think about, I think about Jacob for a second. He walked 500 miles, he's looking for a wife, he sees a beautiful woman, she's in the right family, she's got bling, she's got money, she's got wealth. First impressions are everything. He's got, a, he's got competition right now. He's probably trying to flex and impress her and show off for her and try to maybe woo her so he could have her as his wife. And there's a couple shepherd boys. I mean, they're shepherd boys, not much competition, but the way that he looks right now after 500 miles and she doesn't know about his inheritance and the 50 or the 401k and the trust fund that his daddy's got set up for him. There's competition around this well. And he's like, dudes, get lost. Get out of here. Why your sheep go back to the pasture? I want some alone time to be able to smooge this girl to try to make her my wife. And I love how dude Jacob goes right here. Up to this point, we haven't seen Jacob do much of anything except cook, maybe clean. He was kind of a, a house boy, stayed indoors, played video games, cooks and bakes with mom, influenced very much by his mom. He's a mama's boy. We haven't seen him step up to the plate and really man up until now. And there's nothing like a woman to make a man out of a boy. There's nothing like the right woman that catches the eye of a boy or a young man and the things that they will do, he's like, I got to shape up. I got I to gotta impress her. First impressions 
are everything. And he goes all dude on them. While he was still talking with them, the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over, he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and he watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. She's approaching, got competition. He's got to do something. I, I'm assuming he takes that first impressions or everything, right? So he takes off his odor robe. He, he looks around, he finds the heaviest thing he could find and just lifts it. He lifts it up and just looks at her like flexing, like, yeah, I, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I'm strong. I'm mighty. Look at me. I, look, look how tough I am. These other shepherd boys were waiting for somebody else to, else to roll it, but I don't need somebody else. I'll do it. And then, he, and then he serves her, which is crazy because he hasn't lifted anything heavier than a spatula probably his entire life. And then he goes over and flexes when a beautiful woman comes around and lifts this stone. He's trying to impress her. And then he's like, you know, let me serve you. Let me do your work for you. Let me, let me like impress you by showing you, and I'll go to some lengths to do your work for you and to serve you. And she's probably like, ooh, strong man. I like this. Oh, you want to take some of the responsibility into work and, and, and water my sheep? I kind of like this guy. And then somewhere in the middle of the sheep getting a drink, he kisses her. Now there's debate on whether or not this was the customary greeting of the day, where it's like, you know, like the Italians, you know, Chris does that to me sometimes. I'm just kidding, he doesn't. But the customary greeting of coming up and, and the chicken peck or the little kiss of just customary greeting, we don't see that in scripture or in their culture. We don't have that really fleshed out as certainty. Did he kiss her on the lips? Did he kiss her out of emotion? Probably, but this is the first time I know of through the first 29 chapters that we see a kiss mentioned between a male and a female, a man and a woman. Now, yeah, there were a lot of babies born. I know there's a lot of necking and a lot of kissing going on, right? But the first time it was mentioned is in this moment, and so was it customary? Maybe. Was it out of emotional? He was just overcome. Yes, I found you. I want you to be my wife. Let me kiss you. He was probably surprised it happened. She was surprised it happened. And she's, and I'm like, hold on. I'm like, I'm like, Jacob, chill out. You lifted something heavy. You're flexing on her. Slow down, cowboy. Like you don't kiss her on the first meeting. Guys, free relational advice. Probably shouldn't kiss a girl on the first time you ever met her in your entire life. Things aren't going well in this first interaction. And then after he kisses her, he starts crying. He starts weeping out loud. I'm sure it's like, yeah, I'm, this, I'm the son of Rebecca and she told me to come and Esau's trying to kill me. And he's just a bubbling mess after 500 miles overcome with emotion. He kisses her and he starts crying. I'm, and I look at this and go, nah, dude, like, Jacob, what are you doing? Like, if you're really trying to pull this girl, this is not the way to do it. Ladies, free relationship advice. If the man cries on the first meeting, he's got mommy issues, Okay. Probably need to steer clear. Now, men, it's okay to cry. It is. It's okay to have a sensitive side. We're all made, like, it's okay. We don't have to have the, the rough and tough all the time. We can be real and honest, but maybe not on the first interaction, on the first date. Wait till like date five or six or something to then open up. But I'm sure <laughs> Rachel's sitting here at this, and this is not a great tactic, but it worked somehow. Somehow there's a bond that's formed here. There's a love that's formed here. It's some out of a novel or a movie. It's crazy. And she's like looking at him like, you know what? He's got strength. I like that. But more importantly, he's got that sensitive side. I mean, he's just, he's just looking into my eyes and he's just melting right now. And he holds my hand and talks to me and the, the gaze that we're sharing. I love that sensitive side. He carries a handkerchief with him because he's so in touch with himself. And a bond forms. A love story starts. It's crazy. But buckle up. The dysfunction's coming. It's wild. So she runs back. 
tells her daddy what had happened. Probably not the kiss part. <laughs> and then uh, says, your relative is here. And so Laban comes out. He hears the news that his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and he kissed him. Maybe, maybe it was customary because Laban's doing it too. I don't know. Probably might've been different and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things, what had happened in his journey. And he unpacked the whole process. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. And Jacob stayed with him for a whole month. And Laban said to him, just because you are my relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Laban's a shrewd dude. He is a shrewd guy. Be careful if you meet some Labans in your life. And we're going to learn that Laban doesn't have a son. He's got two daughters. And so, and that explains why Rachel's taking care of the sheep. That would have been more of like a, a, you know, the guy or the son's responsibility to take care of the wealth or to take care of the family flock. But Rachel's doing it. She's got a good head on her shoulder. She's smart. She's able to do that. It makes her more attractive and appealing probably to Jacob because of that. And so he doesn't have a son. And when Jacob shows up, it's like Laban kind of adopts him, says, you're my flesh and blood. You're my boy. You're the son that I never had. I'm going to take you into my household. But you were a freeloader for about 50, 60 years. That's about how old you are in your mother's household, but not here. You're going to man up. You're going to start working. You're going to start going out and producing and providing as a man of the household mentality. You're not going to be a freeloader anymore. You're going to work for me, but you're not going to work for me for free. I'm going to pay you your due wages. So name it, name your price. And J- Jacob's new to the work thing. He's, he's not really probably, you know, into the negotiating and the bartering and the working and the wages and compensations. Like I said, he's been warming up stew his whole life with his mom in the house. Esau and Isaac were the ones that probably negotiated and bartered and traded and did all the business dealings. And so he asked Jacob, what's, what's your wage? And Jacob is new to this, but he's overcome with emotion with Rachel of that first interaction impression. He kissed her and he cried in front of her on the first date. And he says, that's, that, that's what I want. I want her. And seven years, he says, seven years, I will be my wage for her. And so Laban, he had $2. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, hey, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. It is done. Contract. Yes. Put it in stone. Seven years. End of it. You can have Rachel. She's yours. Now, there's a verse in here that I got to talk about and I want to talk about, but I'm, I, I understand that I'm going to be walking a very fine line. But here's a disclaimer. The Bible right wrote it. This is not Myron coming up with this. And that's a good disclaimer to have because I'm a guy and we're going to talk about this from a lady's perspective. Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah has weak eyes. Rachel is beautiful with a lovely figure. You see, when Rachel drives the Ferrari through town, all the guys stop and stare. She's the conversation. She's the one that people are looking at and chasing and pursuing and are looking at her and wanting to make her their wife, most likely most likely. Beautiful figure. There's this spark in her eyes. She's stunningly beautiful. She's a babe. She's a smoke show. And then Leah, she's got a good personality. She's got, you know, she's like really nice and funny and you just got to get to know her. And there's this disparity or this discrepancy. And it seems like an injustice or an unfairness that, you know, Leah has to live with Rachel. And it's like every time you know, every time that somebody, you know, shows up at the house knocking on the door, it's never for Leah, it's always for Rachel. 
Or every time the phone would ring and, and, and someone's trying to call on, you know, one of his daughters, it's always for Rachel and never for Leah. Now the word weak eyes could mean visual impairment. It could mean some sort of disability or deformity with her sight, possibly. But it also could mean that she doesn't have that spark. She doesn't have that, that look, that aura about her, the figure or the appeal with beauty to the, in the eyes of man. And I think in this context, when it's comparing it to, to Rachel, it's, it's the second where it's, she doesn't have that spark, that, that look or that figure or that beauty in the eyes of man. And every time homecoming or prom came around or a dance or a phone call, they were always asking about Rachel, never asking about Leah. Or anytime someone talked to Leah, I was like, hey, Leah, how you doing? Good, that's great. Hey, can you like, can I come over? So I just like, you know, can I come over? But their motive's like, I just want to see Rachel. I just want to talk to Rachel. Could you imagine living in that? And the, free, the reality is, is it, would be, it would be hard to live with Miss Teen Haran as the older sister. And I think, if we're honest, that's the reality for a lot of women in our culture today, is there's a standard of beauty that has been stated of what is appealing or expected, and all women, most women, feel like they fall short of that. And it breeds all kind of insecurity in comparison. It's hard to talk about this, especially as a guy. But I want to point you to a, a study that Dove did, the beauty products uh, creator. And it says the study was the real truth about beauty. They surveyed women from all across the globe, and only 4% of women said that they thought they were beautiful. 4%. So what about the other 96%? They're looking at the 4% and going, yeah, right, you liars. <laughs> all women feel they're not beautiful. There's an insecurity in a comparison. 96% of women have bought the lie. And here's why. Every magazine cover, every model, Hollywood, red carpet, Instagram model, influencer, OnlyFans page, accounts, you name it. The posters that guys hang in their garage, in their workshops, the pornography industry, the list goes on and on and on and on. Advertisements for makeup and beauty project, lingerie commercials, pictures on Instagram of people that you know, and there's a standard of beauty that our culture has elevated and worshiped. And women look at that and go, that's not me. I'm not beautiful. I'm not desirable. I'm not a Rachel. I don't fit the mold or the description of what beauty is. I don't have the figure, the physique, the hair, the skin tone. I don't have what it takes. And I don't know what the culture was back 4,000 years ago when Leah and Rachel were, were existing, but I know that there was a standard of beauty that was probably there and Rachel had it and Leah did it. And there are standards in beauty across all of cultures. Some say it's thin and tall. Some say it's blue-eyed and blue-eyed and blonde hair. Some say the bigger, the better. Some have in different countries across the world, like putting a ring around your neck to extend the length of your neck. And the more rings you get, the longer your neck, the more beautiful you are, the bigger your earlobes sag. There's all sorts of standards that we have. And in America, it's red carpet, Hollywood, Instagram, models, swimsuit edition, Sports Illustrated, magazine covers, the posters, all of that, the commercialization, the sexual idolization of a woman's physique as the standard of beauty that we have set. And only 4% across the globe think they're beautiful. But here's what I want you to know, ladies, is that God made you exactly the way that you are. And your value is intrinsic to you because you're made in the image of God and not based on your physical appearance. It's not. And you deserve dignity and respect and love and value and cherish, not for how you look, but for who you are made in the image of God. You're beautiful in God's eyes, the way that you are. And I know saying that falls short because it's still real. You live day to day in it, totally inundated with the comparison culture of beauty. And I get that. 
It's not easy. But here's what I want you to know is that there's someone out there, I believe, who thinks you're beautiful. There's a man out there who you are his type. You are. And so don't settle for a, a pig or a, uh, somebody who isn't going to cherish you and love you for who you are. There's a guy out there who will love you and cherish you for who you are. Lee and Rachel, two women, very different. Culture, comparison, level of beauty. It sets the stage and looks like their whole entire childhood and upbringing is now setting the stage for what's about to happen in this half the chapter and in the next chapter next week. And I look at this and I go, man, seriously, again? (laughs) Again, like more dysfunction to a degree bigger than what we've seen in previous generations of this chosen family, the chosen people of God. It's wild. Jacob loves Rachel. He wants her as a wife. And Laban says, all right, bro, you got it, you sucker. Go ahead, work for seven years. You know, you, I don't know who taught you bargaining, but I probably would have did it for one year. And so Jacob served for seven years to get Rachel, but it seemed like only a few days because he loved her, because of his love for her. And here's the thing, which is crazy. The things that men do to get women, the lengths that men will go to pursue, pull, and get a woman. He's never worked a day in his life and he's out here flipping stones and heavy objects. He's been a domesticated mama's boy heating up soup and now he's going to work for seven years manual labor for a woman that's completely opposite of what he's always known. And it's amazing to see what guys will do for girls. We'll flex, we'll show off, we'll puff up, we'll try to smooth, we'll try to impress in order to get them to desire us. And if you're married for a second, let me ask you, what did you do to win her? And some of you ladies are like, I don't want to be thought of something that was won. But that's how we see it. We put in effort. We wrote notes, poetry, made you mixtapes, made you custom CDs. We went to lengths to impress you so that you would give us the light of day to hang out with us and to give us an opportunity to, to be with you. And so guys, if how you won her is how you keep her. And you're like, well, that's not who I was. You know, I was just doing that to to win the prize and to get her. But the reality is, is no one likes the real you. You don't even like the real you. I don't like the real me because I'm a selfish pig full of lust and conceited desires. I want to do what I want to do. But when I got selfless and sacrificial and was serving her, she fell in love with that. I remember when I met Emily, she was dating a guy. And I was like, I don't matter. <laughs> Not a big deal. Small obstacle to overcome. I pursued her like crazy. I wanted her. I'd write notes. I'd leave sticky notes in her room when she wasn't there. Her roommate would let me in. I would write endearing notes. I would send her messages. I wouldn't convince her to go on long walks with me. And I made up this, this is more detail than I wanted to share today, but I feel like I need to. There are light posts that are numbered all across the campus that we went to school at West Liberty. And I convinced her, I was like, hey, we got to find all, all, all the numbers. There was like 180 or something light poles. And you know what? We couldn't find number one. Strategically, we couldn't find number one. We had to keep going on walks. We had to keep going out and searching campus and spending time together. And eventually I convinced her to break up with a boyfriend and go out with me. And I wouldn't take no for an answer. The things that I would do to, 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 to win her heart are the same exact things that I have to do to keep her heart. And a lot of times when we stand up and say, I do, it's like game over. Okay, I'm comfortable, whatever, no big deal. And your marriage intimacy will drift. 
And so, yeah, don't be the real you. Be the version of you that's the best you, that Christ wants you to be selfless, sacrificial, and putting her first. And continually win her heart and pursue her. Love makes us do crazy things. And, and to stay in love, we should do those same crazy things to continually win her heart. So Jacob is waiting seven years. He's, he loves her. It was such a small time in his mind. He was willing to wait. Love waits. Love is persistent. Love is patient. Love is kind. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians lays all that out. Jacob's doing that. But then when the seven years is up, he's like, it's up. Let's go. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete. I want to make love to her. I want to lie with her. I want to have sex with her. Like I've had this date marked on my calendar for seven years. I've done manual labor that I've never done in my entire life so I could have her. It's time, bro. It's time. Give me my wife. I've done my time. And I love that we serve a God who created sex and sexuality. He's not a prude. He's not offended or upset when we enjoy the greatest wedding present he ever gave us. We should have anticipation for it. That's great. That's fine. Inside the confines and a covenant of marriage is to where it's to be freely expressed. It's an incredible gift. And anticipation for that day is not 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 bad. It's okay. But sex is reserved for marriage. It's a beautiful thing and can have anticipation. He's been anticipating this day for seven years and he goes, it's worth it. Every day's worth it. I want her. And so he gets her. Laban says, all right, let's throw the wedding ceremony. So he brings all the people together. He throws a huge feast. And when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her, Leah. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I look at this and go, what? I, it's Leah. It was, he said, I don't understand. How does this happen? How, how, does, how does he sleep with the wrong person? How do you have sex with the wrong person? And I would assume that there were large amounts of alcohol at the party like insane amounts of alcohol at the party because there's a great feast. And when there's a great feast, there's good wine flowing. And I know Laban, as we see, a deceiver. He's got this whole plan probably conjured up. Maybe he's had it conjured up since the beginning. Says, hey, servant boy, you see Jakey over there? When his cup's empty, fill it, bro. Shot after shot after shot. Liquor that dude up. I want him sloppy drunk because I got something really cool for him later. He's going to love it. So tons of alcohol, I'm sure. He's probably fully intoxicated. That's one thought and one possibility. And then as the bride is presented to Jacob or the groom, she'd be completely gowned, completely covered, completely veiled. You wouldn't see her at all. There would be a transaction and an agreement between father and the groom. And then they would take them and escort them into the bridal chamber where it's a tent that's dark, no electricity, no lights, and then he could unveil her, undress her, and he could, you know, have sex with her. And so even then, it's dark. He doesn't, he can't see. He's inebriated, most likely. And Jacob sleeps with her. How? I still, I'm still puzzled to how. But here, here's the thing. He's never done this before. We think in our modern culture, though, oh, yeah, you try before you buy. So obviously he would have had familiarity with her body and her scent and would have known her. And so he would have, he would have, I don't care how drunk he was, he probably should have known because he's been familiar. No, he wouldn't have. 
They would have kept them separate. They wouldn't have had the long walks around campus looking for light pole number one. They wouldn't have had long walks on the beach. They wouldn't have had the country song where they're dancing again and again and again on the tailgate of a truck, turn it up. Like they wouldn't have had that. They would have been kept apart. They wouldn't have had this intimacy. They wouldn't have had a lot of kissing, touching, familiarity with one another's body, scent, and all of that. So he doesn't even know this woman, her body, or her scent. He's got lots to drink. The tent is dark, and he sleeps with her. He's been pure for seven years waiting for this moment. He's not probably verifying. He just wants to. All of those are possibilities of why the wrong woman and he slept with the wrong woman. Morning comes, light peeks in through the tent. He rolls over. (laughs) He sees weak eyes laying there. I could just imagine the scene. He gets up out of the tent, busts out of the door, and his boxers, Laban, I worked for Rachel, and you gave me her. Seven years of my life, waiting and working and sacrificing and impressing and trying to win her, and you switch it all on me. You deceived me. And I wonder if Jacob's having flashbacks right now. I was like, oh yeah. Hmm. Now I know what it feels like to be on the other side of a great deception to where you remember the reason that he traveled 500 miles is because his brother wants to kill him. And his brother wants to kill him is because his brother was the oldest one and got the birthright and the double portion of the inheritance. But Jacob deceives father and brother to get the inheritance. And that's why he's got to flee. So Jacob deceives younger for older. And now Laban deceives older for younger. Jacob's name means hill tripper or deceiver. Jacob just got out Jacob. The deceiver got out deceived. He just got duped. He just got the switcheroo pulled on him. He got beat at his own game. And I'm looking at this and going, man, the apple does not fall far from the tree in this family. They are a bunch of broken, messed up, sinful, filled with flesh and desired people. And then I look at this and go, how did the girls go along with this? How did did Laban convince them that this was okay? I don't know if Rachel's locked up in like Cinderella when the glass slippers were being tried on. I'm not sure if she's locked up in a mop closet while the man of her dreams is being given away. I'm not sure if Leah's like, you know what? No one's wanted me this far. So this might be my only chance to get married. Sure, I'll go along with it. But I'm sure that neither girl wants this. Leah wants a guy to love her and find her beautiful just the way that she is, but she might have resentment and vengeance towards her sister because every guy has always wanted her and now it's a chance for her to stick it to her. I don't know. Here's what I do know. 4,000 years ago, what dad said went, period. Especially towards women. No negotiating, not what they wanted at all. They were property. They were seen as property that could be exchanged for goods and services and property. And that's why there was a dowry and a payment that was made so that the, you know, the bride could be given. And it was just a transaction. They were property to be married off. And so what dad said went. And this is dad's response when, when Jacob says, why have you deceived me? Laban replied, well, obviously it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. So finish my daughter's bridal week, then give, then I'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And I'm sure Jacob knew this, but he's like, hey, seven years, Leah's going to get married in seven years. Come on, like seven years. Didn't happen. And so Laban's holding on to the custom and saying, well, obviously I can't give you the younger, like you idiot, you, you're, you're a poor negotiator. You didn't understand this, but I'll tell you what, I'll have some kindness on you. Finish your seven days or six more days of your bridal week commitment to her. Then on the eighth day, we'll throw another ceremony 
and then you can have Rachel, but you got to give me seven more years of work. What's Jacob to do? Like, what's he supposed to do? He's bound to Leah. It's a done deal. He can't, it's not a one night stand like we think about in our culture where you can walk away. It was a commitment, a covenant. It was a marriage. They were bound together for life. So finish your week with her and then I'll give you Rachel. So Jacob did so. He finished his week with Leah and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave the servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel for her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. You see this? Again, seriously, we have favorites, right? I mean, it's just a repetitive, it's a jacked up family raising jacked up kids. So those kids, when they become adults, still live a jacked up life. And, and they, don't have, they don't have the guts enough to stand up and say, no longer, this stops with me, right? And then we have a problem in our culture of taking our morality and our understanding and trying to apply it to them 4,000 years ago. It's a very different culture. And so we look at this and go, how could this happen? But they're messed up people. And so what would be the right thing for Jacob to do? I'm not sure, but not have favorites. He just witnessed mom and dad having favorites and saw how destructive that came to where one brother wants to murder the other brother. And he's doing the same thing. He has a favoritism towards Rachel and not Leah, even though he's equally married to both of them and he should have equal love and show no partiality too. And that's what we would say, but it's a different culture. It's hard for us to look back and place it. What's the idea or what's the view on multiple wives? It's a different time, a different place. But here's the thing I know and the truth that I know is no matter what kind of whacked up situation you find yourself in, we've got to do the next right thing no matter what's been done to you or what you find yourself in because of what you've done, obedience can start today and you can do the next right thing. Jacob should have loved them equally. He should have showed no favoritism. He should have loved Leah, not because of her lack of, or he shouldn't have loved her less because of her lack of physical attraction, but because of her intrinsic value as a woman made in the image of God, legally bound to him. She deserves the dignity, respect and love of her husband. And some of us might be thinking the same thing of like, or Jacob's like, yeah, but she's not the wife I wanted. She's not the wife I would have chosen. Knowing now, you know, like hindsight. And some of you, that might be your story. Like, yeah, I, this, this wasn't the wife I really wanted or the husband. They're not panning out to be what I thought they would. But obedience today, following Jesus would say, love them still. Serve them still. Sacrifice for them still. Through your sacrifice and through your service, you love them. That's obedience to Christ and what he's calling you in the bond of marriage. But Jacob can't. He's got a sin nature. He's got resentment and unforgiveness probably towards Laban. She's going to suffer, Laban. This is your fault, not mine. And he wants what he wants and Rachel's is what he wants. And then the story takes an insane twist. For the next few verses, I'm not going to read them, but I'm just going to overview them. It's going to cascade into next week. Rachel can't have any kids. But Leah produces four kids for Jacob. And this brings me to the point about this. Like, even though Jacob doesn't love Leah, he's still sleeping with her. And here's what I believe, ladies. Just because he's sleeping with you doesn't mean he loves you. He's just wanting something from you. And to prove it, stop sleeping with him and see how much he loves you. Now, if you're married, we're not, we cannot withhold sexual interaction with one another. But I would say, honestly, evaluate your marriage and go, hey, if we, didn't, if we weren't having sex, would you still love me? Have that conversation. That'll hurt. That's an honest evaluation of your marriage. 
but it's necessary. We should love not for what they can provide for us sexually, but because they have value in God's eyes. They're made in his image and I'm bound to you and I'll love you. I'll sacrifice because of my obedience to Christ, I will do this regardless of the sexual interaction. Sex is a gift. It's beautiful. Have lots of it. It'll help your marriage. I promise you. But ladies, if you're single and sleeping with him, he might not love you just because he's sleeping with you. Stop sleeping with him and he'll show you how much he loves you. He doesn't love Leah, but he's still having sex with her. And she gets pregnant four times while Rachel's womb is still barren at this moment. And every time Leah has a kid, she's hoping, all right, I got the firstborn son for him, the birthright, the heir, now he'll love me. Nope. Second son, yeah, now he'll love me. Nope. A third son, now he'll love me. Nope. The fourth son, she finally names him Judah, which means praise to God. And she finally, I think, comes to a a point in her life where she's just going to serve God and praise God for who he is. And she's good and content in that, even though she has a jerk of a husband who doesn't love her. She's content in the eyes of her maker of knowing I'll praise you even in this tough situation. And then there's all kind of jealousy between the women. And we're going to unpack all that next week. Come back. (laughs) It's like Jersey Shore meets reality TV. It's crazy. But here's the two points I want to leave us with. Is you never know the kind of servant you are until you're treated like one. And I think about Jacob to where he had luxury, lavishness. He was always being served. He never served probably anybody. And now for 14 years, he's going to work for a jerk of a boss and he's going to do it faithfully. He's going to do, he's going to fulfill his commitments. He's not going to flake. He's a 14 after he's a rich kid from the mansion with the inheritance and the trust fund coming his way when dad dies. But for now, 14 years, he's got to step up as a servant, as a worker, a provider, man. And here's the the application for you and I. Our greatest title as Christians should be that of a servant above all else. Matthew 20 and Matthew 23, Jesus talks about this. We talk about greatness in the kingdom of God. He says, you know, we look at greatness and the Gentiles look at greatness of how many people are serving you. That's how great you are. Not so with you. Not so with you as Jesus followers in my kingdom. Flip it. You'll be great because how many people you serve and expect nothing in return. Jesus came to, not, to, to, be, to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many, to die on that cross for you and I and for all mankind for all time. And our response should be, I'll serve as well. Whatever's asked of me, because his life was asked of him. And I withhold nothing. I will be a servant. I will serve people. I will love people. I will give my life away. And we should be a servant above all else. And that should be the number one title. And calling yourself a servant and being treated like a servant are different. You can say I'm a servant of Christ. Yeah, I serve people. But until you get treated like one, hey, wash these feet. Hey, vacuum this carpet. I was vacuumed five minutes ago. I don't care. Vacuum it again. Until you're treated to where nothing is beneath you, you'll do the lowliest of lows and you'll do it with diligence and a good work ethic and a positive attitude because I'm working for the Lord and not for human masters. I withhold nothing. So I'm treated like a servant, not just claiming to be a servant. It will show you what kind of servant you really are. And Jacob, imperfect as he is for 14 years, serves faithfully. It highlights that he's got it in him. He's got it in him. And when you're treated like a servant, you have no rights. It says, whoever wants to be great among you must become a slave to all. 
You have no rights. Jesus is in charge of your life. Whatever he asks, whatever he commands, whatever he teaches, I will have obedience saying yes. And I won't negotiate and bargain. I'll follow him out of gratitude for what he did and the sacrifice he did, the servanthood he had going to the cross to save my soul in response, I will serve radically. And I want that to be the number one thing that Christians are known by and that we are known by. And in your marriage is the place in which you are, this is highlighted or exemplified. We should be an incredible servant to our spouse. Do whatever we can to love them, please them, put them before our own selfish desires. And you do that, the best marriage you could possibly have waits you. The second point I have is this, is that disobedience doesn't derail God's plan for your life, but it changes how you experience it. Chris, our lead, Chris last week kind of unpacked this, the crooked path, the straight path, like doing it God's way, wanting what God wants more than what you want. And it doesn't derail God's plan. Your disobedience or us doing it the wrong way outside of God's best and his design doesn't derail God's plan in your life. It just changes how you and I experience it. I don't believe that Jacob had to spend 14 years in servanthood as an indentured servant almost to pay a dowry for this woman that he wanted. The plan, the promise, and the dream that he had could have been fulfilled in a much neater, cleaner, non-dramatic, non-messy form, but his disobedience changes the way that we experience God's plan and sovereignty in our life. And so no matter where you find yourself, obedience can start today. Doing the right thing can start today. Managing our sexual appetites can start today because we've seen where that led him to making some irrational, not good bargaining decisions because he wanted what he wanted and didn't think it through clearly enough. And then he's got two wives and he's split and showing favoritism. And so there's all kinds of lessons we can learn from Jacob of where we just need to be obedient. Trust God. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's saying. He know, he's taught us, he's commanded, he's given us his word to live our life by, to have the straightest, best, most joy-filled, purpose-filled life we could possibly have. And our disobedience changes the way we experience that. And my final thing is this. There's a principle in scripture about you reap what you sow. Now, I don't mean karma. I'm not saying that karma is a real thing. Like, okay, to the measure you do, you get back exactly. But there is this principle, and I think in God's kingdom to where if we sow seeds of sin in our life, of division, of unethical uh, behavior in our workplaces, um, inappropriate behavior in our marriages or lust or adultery outside of our marriages, we're going to reap the consequences of that. And here's the thing, it's happening generationally here. Sins are repeated generationally. And so what has been sown into your life as a child and what you've witnessed and seen, you're it's some form of that's probably gonna creep up in your life at one point in time when you have a decision. Does it stop here with me or do I let it continue? And you can break the, the generational sin curse in your life or in your family for your kids and for the future. You can be man enough, you can be woman enough to stand up and say, it stops here. Obedience starts today. I know I won't be perfect, but I'm going to trust Christ and follow him with everything that I have to be on his path for my life and not my own. I surrender every right that I have and freedom that I have and give it to you, Christ. I want to be a slave to you and highlight in my areas, uh, treat me like a slave and by, like a servant so I know the kind of servant that I really am. So I can live a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of you, Jesus, and of the mercy and grace that you bought on my, or the mercy and grace you, you, you give me with your life on that cross.
Could you reap what you sow? The deceiver got deceived. The lies, the manipulation comes back to it. And the same is true for you and I. So what are you sowing? What are you sowing? Because what you sow now, you will reap. And maybe generations in your family to come will reap the consequences or have the same struggles and scenarios that you had, but you can rewrite it now, your legacy and your future. Obedience can start today. Doing the next right thing, regardless of where you are, and follow Jesus. Father, I thank you that you've included this dysfunction in scripture. I thank you that you chose a people so unqualified to have your name. And by your grace and your sovereignty and your will, you do miracles in it. And we see your plan and your purpose unfold. And so God, I thank that. I pray that you would comfort us in knowing that the the crazy and the dysfunction in our lives, that you're good for it too that you'll take our mess and make it a message. You, will, you can rewrite it and make it something beautiful. And would you help us to fight our pride and selfishness and ego and say, I want what you want, Lord. I want your plans. I want to be obedient to what you want, not what I want. And God, you pour out your blessing and your favor on us because of that. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.